As we start to close out 2022, I'm taking a look at some of the major political stories that took place in New Orleans and Louisiana this year. Of course, what I or anybody considers major is subjective. With that in mind, I reached out to Ed Shervinak to help put this political year in perspective. He's a political pollster and also a professor of political science at the University of New Orleans. The major headline in local politics is the increasingly contentious relationship between the city council and Mayor Cantrell. We've seen the city council be assertive in holding Cantrell accountable and also seeking to basically scale back some of the authority from the mayor to the city council. We saw that in the charter change now allowing the city council to have oversight over some of the de- over the department heads that the mayor gets to appoint. In the, the charter right now, we have a strong mayor model um, where the mayor has uh, influence over the budget, over appointments, has veto power. And so what we're witnessing is the, this kind of a shift, this power shift away from the strong mayor model and giving more authority to the city council. And so as a result, that's going to lead to lots of tension uh, between the branches of government. That's what we witness in terms of what's happening within City Hall and City Council Chambers. What I've noticed is that there's a very contentious relationship between Councilman J.P. Morrell and, in many ways, Helena Moreno, the other at-large City Council member. What do you think is at play there? Is that something that's more political or is that more policy-based because we had such concern about crime and garbage pickup, so on and so forth? I mean, it's both political and it's it's policy-oriented. Um, their position is that they've tried to get information and, and have the, the Cantrell administration be more transparent, but mayor's not been willing to share information with the city council has, has, has not been willing to be open with them about what they're doing. And so in, in that sense, it's, it's policy because the, the city council has control over the budget. And it's the city council here who hears the complaints from residents. It's not the mayor's office. It's the, the various district offices and also the at-large folks who are getting the complaints from residents. And so that's why they're concerned about policy. And it's political because we're talking about power. I mean, politics is about power. And, you know, there's always going to be a struggle between the branches for that power. And so, you know, anytime there is an, an attempt to shift those boundaries, that's going to be political. Even though you're, you're announcing that you're more interested in policy, it's still political because we're talking about, you know, raw, naked power. And that's what politics is about. And I've noticed, too, you mentioned politics, policy. There's also a personal element, it seems, a lot of the jabs that have gone back and forth, less from the Cantrell administration, less from the mayor's office, and less from the mayor herself, and more from the city council, uh, particularly J.P. Morrell and Helena Moreno. Are we to read something into that? Is there something personal that's going on between that triangle? That's that's a good question. Uh, I, I suspect that there are probably some personality clashes there. Um, that because the city council can't get what it wants from the Cantrell administration that they basically begin attacking the mayor because she's the one who's in charge. Uh, And so, you know, when you start wrestling in the mud, you know, like we're seeing, it gets personal. Public safety in New Orleans has dominated headlines throughout this year. With drastic increases in homicides and carjackings from 2021, and the alarming number of police that continued to leave the New Orleans Police Department, 
the public and political scrutiny of the mayor's ability to address those issues was undeniable. Her responses to that scrutiny were controversial. That's where my conversation with Shervinak shifted to. If I were to take a guess about where this started, I think it started with the increase in crime and people's perception of how or their understanding of how she handled it or mishandled it. And then it just seemed to snowball from there with these first-class flights right. and then you know these investigations into how she spent her money with uh, a person who's a, apparently a fashion consultant. Uh, and then you have the Pentalba controversy right. as well. How did the mayor hurt or help herself w- within these controversies? Did she handle it correctly? You know, particularly with the international travel um, and when she was called upon to, you know, pay up and make up for, for the upgrade that she became defiant. Very defiant. Right, and says, no, I'm not going to pay it. And I think that really rubbed uh, a lot of people the wrong way that um, she basically took on this air of being the queen of the city rather than being an elected official. Uh, and in terms of the crime, I think a lot of people were upset um, when she showed up at the, the court hearing for an individual who had been involved in a carjacking. Multiple carjackings, yes. And that just projected the, you know, the, the wrong perception for a lot of people that she was siding with a criminal rather than siding with the victims. And so I think that was an, another kind of inflection point that basically showed her kind of out of touch with the situation with crime, you know, and then with kind of using the Pontalba as her private residence, you know, free of charge, she's not paying any rent. Um, you know, here's what we have as an individual using a public resource, uh, but the city's not being compensated for it. it. It's it's not the mayor's, it's the city's apartment. And so again, it gets, they get this sense of entitlement uh, by the mayor. But the, you know, the, 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 the real big issue in the city is crime. And this is the issue that really weighs down the city and it weighs down the mayor's approval ratings. You know, when we did our quality of life survey, she was only at 31% approval, 62% disapproval. So, you know, her disapproval rating is twice what her approval rating is. Um, and, you know, she's not the only one. Also, the, all the agencies in the criminal justice system have very low approval ratings as well. And so this is the top-of-the-mind consideration for people is this crime, and if she can't handle it, then that, you know, regardless of what else is going on, that's the main issue that's, that's really hurting her politically. And that survey you conducted, you released in September, and I think there was a tremendous amount of pressure on the mayor at that point uh, because of the growing controversies, uh, some self-inflicted. She seemed to adjust and then respond through some policy changes with uh, shifts at the NOPD. Uh, and then now we're seeing, just recently within this week, you're seeing the resignation or the retirement, however you'd like to view it, uh, of the police superintendent of the NOPD. Are these kind of the changes that I think were kind of reflected in the survey, that people wanted her to do something with a problem that was so glaring to them. Right. Uh, that, you know, they, they just didn't want, you know, the standard operating procedure. They wanted something different. So she did bring in a couple of consultants from the outside to basically offer some recommendations on how we were able to get a, at least some kind of handle on this issue. So I think that was probably a good way to respond. But in the end, um, you know, it's, it's going to be about results. If people can feel and see the results uh, because public opinion is about perceptions of what's going on out there. 
you have the reality that's out there, and then you have people's interpretation and perceptions of what's happening out there. And so that's the real difficulty for her is to change people's perceptions. It, it comes down to results. She's got to come up with concrete results that people can see and feel. It'll be interesting to see, you know, we're going to have a new police superintendent, whether the, you know, that superintendent will take the police department in a different direction, you know, um, kind of help stanch some of the loss of police officers that are happening in the city. Uh, and so I think, uh, you know, we'll have to wait and see what she has to say in terms of what kind of reform she wants to institute. Does she have too high of a mountain to climb with how people are viewing her? And even the, the city council at this point, is she too toxic for, for people to work with? And then you have on top of that the recall. I don't know if it's reached the point of no return yet. Um, I, I'm, I'm typically an optimistic person, and I think that things can get better and that... Um, you know, maybe, you know, as we move forward, both parties on the city council and in the mayor's administration tone it down a bit, begin to think about what's best for the city. Um, that's my hope. Um, I, I suspect that the, the city council is going to continue to be uh, assertive in trying to scale back some of the powers of the mayor. Uh, I don't think that's going to change anytime soon. Um, and I think particularly after January 1st, uh, if the mayor does get to announce any de new department heads, then city council will involve itself. The other thing I'm kind of wondering is as the mayor, you know, basically is kind of becoming a lame duck, um, that people will begin to basically leave her administration. You know, they're probably filling out their resumes right now and beginning to think about what they're going to do in the post-Cantrell uh, era and so that could have an effect on how city government performs as well and so that's something we needed to keep an eye on. Let's go back to, to the recall because I spoke with one organizer of the recall and Eileen Carter said uh, you know this is not about race this is not about uh, personality it's really about her handling the Cantrell administration's handling of really some basic issues garbage pickup I don't want to say public safety is a simple issue, but it's a concern that people must have. She says this is really why we're, we're bringing this recall, because we can't even handle the basics, let alone make this a great city. Where do you see the recall in terms of its effectiveness, and ultimately, will it come through and, and kind of accomplish what it's set out to do? Right. Um, and so the argument that they're making is that it's about performance or lack of performance by the mayor. And, and that's the mayor's job is to provide these basic services to citizens of the city. In terms of the, the recall and the potential for success, um, when they were three months into it, which is basically half of the time that they're allowed to collect signatures, they were at 35% um, of their required number of signatures. So that to me told me that they were well behind because if you're at that halfway point, you should be have more than 50% of the required signatures that you need because you're going to need more than 53,000 signatures. There's going to be some uh, error in terms of signatures. Uh, some people will, are not registered voters or you can't make out the signature or they've moved and their address is different and so there's going to be some error so you've got to have you've got to you know have some excess signatures. So 
I, my sense is that they're behind, and I know that they ha have bailed out these, uh, um, you know, recall petitions. In fact, my wife and I just got ours yesterday. Well, they also they've had TV spots now. Right. I think that it, it shows a at least a substantial amount of fundraising, at least. How effective it's going to be is a question for you know. That's one of the yeah. That. I mean, that's one of the questions I have. I'm I'm not sure how much money you should be devoting to an air war, right, or to billboards. Uh, to me, it's this is more of a function of a ground game where you've got people on the ground, right, going out and and talking to people in their homes or you know at the doorway, getting them to sign there. Seems to me that would be a much more efficient use of resources than. Uh, television ads, all right, and uh, billboards, and you know, and this is a political campaign just like others. And a ground war defeats an air war every time, and so that's where their focus should be. Well, and I attended a press conference uh, a few weeks ago, and it, it seemed to me that, and they stated they wanted to get the required number of signatures by the end of the year. We're close to it. It, it seems uh, a far off goal at this point, because I think if they wanted to get something as a referendum onto the next election, right. that's a very small window. If you could talk about just the logistics of that, I mean, is that possible? If there were 35% or roughly 40%, let's just say, if we're generous about it, within three months uh, of launching that recall petition, to get a referendum where you would actually get it on the ballot and get it to people, and then you would actually have to win that referendum. That's, that's another challenge. And so yeah, so the, it's a very very tight window in terms of time because they want to get that election as early as possible. Because uh, if not, if it's going to take even you know if if there's because you know not only are they going to submit the signatures, but the mayor's people are going to challenge those signatures and they have every right to do so and for all intents and purposes it becomes less practical because if you're stretching into another year then right. you're basically <clears throat> having two years left on a term and then you're now considering recalling a mayor that's got two years left on a term and then two years later you're now looking at a new mayor then you have to go through so many processes of finding an interim mayor it just seems that it's logistically just a nightmare it is logistically very very difficult uh, and I and I think you know the further we get from the initial recall, <clears throat> excuse me, the less energy there is out there, and a greater calculation of, well, she's only got a couple more years. Um, we're not very happy with her, but we're not going to sign the recall. Um, I mean, it, it isn't like she's done anything criminal, uh, you know, that would justify recalling for office. Yes, she's done a bad job. We've had previous mayors who've done poor jobs as well and have not been recalled, and so... Uh, we'll just let you know, let her tenure run out, and then we'll just elect someone new. All right, we'll always have another election. I know the purpose of the the recall was obviously because of the title of the recall is to recall the mayor. But, and I posed this question to Eileen Carter: Is there a scenario where the recall fails, but yet it forces the mayor, forces the administration to take care of the issues that were most prioritized by? citizens or the public that in a way it's effective that it changed the view of the mayor or exacted the change that the recall wanted i'm not really sure how much pressure the recall is, is putting on the mayor i think that they 
view it as kind of a lost cause and that they don't really have to pay much attention to it. That, you know, the mayor's term limited and is no longer going to face the voters, is no longer accountable to the voters. And so that basically means that I'm not going to say that she can do whatever she wants to do, but it takes a lot of pressure off of her and that she can make decisions uh, that may not be popular, but there's really not that much that people can do. You know, as a political scientist, I'm not a fan of term limits. Uh, and it's for this reason is because once you are reelected and you're term limited, you are no longer accountable. And so that's what elections do. They keep public officials accountable for their actions. So we use their ambition against them, right, that uh, they want to continue to be elected and reelected. And so, okay, uh, to do so, though, you, know, right, you have to abide by the wishes of the electorate. Where does legacy play in that? Because if you are a term-limited mayor, and I, I think we kind of saw this with Mitch Landrieu. You know, he left in his second, his second term, then we had the uh, taking down of the Confederate monuments. I think part of that was a consideration for his legacy. Yes. Um, does a mayor like Latoya Cantrell consider her legacy about you know, her position as the first female black mayor of New Orleans. Uh, is she, uh, right. considering I, that, does that kind of steer her policies? Uh, I, that's a great question because I think that she is concerned about her legacy and, you know, she is the, the, not just the, the first female uh, mayor and, and basically wants to set a good example um, for subsequent um, elections when women want to run for office. So I think, yeah, that, you know, she, she, she wants to have this legacy of getting things done, but she also wants the legacy of, of you know, being tough, making the hard decisions. Um, you know, we tend to have a double standard when it comes to how we evaluate men and women in terms of leadership positions. You know, men are assertive where women are viewed as aggressive and it's not fair, um, but it is what it is. And so I, th you know, I think she would like basically to, to basically leave a legacy that she, you know, particularly with COVID, she made the hard decisions. People didn't agree with them. They were upset with her, but she stuck to her guns. And that seems to be her model is that she, you know, she gets some pushback and then she sticks to her guns and, you know, to the point of being come, becoming defiant. Um, and that's the, the, you know, that thin line that, you know, you have to be careful about crossing. When it comes to political stories from the state level this year, Shervinek says they didn't have the kind of drama we saw in New Orleans city politics. In many ways, the discussions of state politics in Louisiana are forward-facing, and they involve the future of the Republican Party, former President Donald Trump, and the Republican who many see as Trump's main rival in 2024, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. Let's get to state politics. Well, what do you see are the headlines of, of this year coming out of the state level? Well, uh, we're going to have a governor's election next year, so I think that's going to be the big story um, for the next 12 months, I guess. Get ready for it. <laughs> uh, you know, we've already got people who have announced that they're going to run. Jeff Landry has said he's going to run. The Louisiana Republican Party's already endorsed him. And that was the point of contention yes. uh, for a lot of folks, and Newell Norman, who has his own show on WWL Radio, obviously, he saw that as a move that stifled voters because now you know where the Republican leadership within the state of Louisiana stood, and that really steers a lot of folks, in his view, to Jeff Landry. What are your thoughts on that? It also, you know, 
was attempt to influence any potential uh, opponents for Jeff Landry, right? Um, because now, if say you know John Kennedy's thinking about running, Billy Nungesser thinking about running, right? Both Republicans, uh, are they going to be on the outside looking in as a result of this endorsement for Jeff Landry? Um, but I think what it signifies more than anything else is just the re- extreme rightward shift of the state Republican Party, because Jeff Landry is a comes out of the Tea Party movement, very you know hard right Republican. Is he a MAGA Republican, as we call? Well, him we've now? Ca- yeah, I would I would define him as a MAGA Republican because you know the MAGA movement came out of that Tea Party movement. Um, you know, if, if we look at Congress, the Freedom Caucus. Right is a an outgrowth of the of the Tea Party movement, and so it just gives us this indication: this is where the state Republican Party is. It's on, you know, the, the very hard right, and so Jeff Landry is, you know, he's he he would be their candidate, um, but uh, I'm not sure. There's you know a number of centrist Republicans who are probably not very happy uh, with that endorsement. That they would like to see who else is going to run first. And then, all right, the, the Republican Party would then decide on which uh, candidate that they were going to support. But now they're locked in. And so this is something that, you know, could be held against the, the Jeff Landry because now they could be accused of, uh, you know, backroom deal making. Um, and so you, what, what kind of deals did you make? Uh, and so I don't, I'm not sure how strong this endorsement's going to be, um, you know, and, and you know, this Republican primary is probably going to be very, very contentious, um, as primaries are today. Uh, and so um, it'll be interesting to see. Um, uh, it would be interesting to hear how John Kennedy, you know, will approach us if he decides to run. Uh, will he attack the state Republican Party for making this endorsement? Or will the state Republican Party rescind this endorsement as a result um, of the pressure that's being put on them? Senator Kennedy is known for his sound bites and yes. his uh, use of language for sure. Do you see the state of Republican politics within Louisiana very closely intertwined with the federal level? It, are they one in one now almost? Because it, it's, I find, and I think you did some research in a survey that found that most Republicans in Louisiana would support President Trump as the, the candidate. So does that indicate and does that tell the rest of the Republicans within the Republican Party in the state of Louisiana, this is the line we need to tell? Well, ours is just one poll. I'm sure they're doing their own polls. Uh, and they're probably paying much more attention to their polls than they are to ours, which which makes sense. At this point, it, and if we with this snapshot in time, I think that uh, if, if we're looking at the Republican Party at the federal level as the Trump Party, then yes, we could say that's what's happening here in Louisiana, that the, the folks here are more supportive of Trump. That being said, 36% for DeSantis is actually, I think, pretty good numbers for him. Financial donors, they know who DeSantis is. Activists, they know who he is. Voters, for the most part, don't really know who he is. I, I don't think he has a high level of name recognition in the state, but still 36% of Republicans said that they would support him. It'll be interesting to see you know, if those numbers change if he decides to run now, he's just been reelected governor of Florida. Um, he's got um, a program he wants to get through the Florida legislature, so that's going to be his focus. They'll be done in May, and I think at that time, then he'll decide whether he wants to run or not. 
you have Trump who's announced. You have DeSantis who, for all intents and purposes, hasn't announced, but everybody assumes will be running. Right. Does everybody kind of get into those factions? I mean, is it just those two camps at this point for Republicans? At this point in the party, you know, you have your Trump supporters and you have your non-Trumpers, right? And it does seem to be bifurcated that way. One of the things that might take place is, well, you may get five or six people, right, decide that they're going to run for this Republican nomination. Um, Now, that's an advantage for Donald Trump because he has this small, well, say like 30%, right, uh, ardent, loyal base in the Republican Party. And that the the, the remaining uh, challengers would split up the rest of the Republicans and that literally Donald Trump could win with 30% of the vote in primaries because it's winner take all for the Republicans, right? So you have 30% of the vote, but you're getting 100% of the delegates. So I think a lot of what's going to happen will be determined by how many challengers that decide to take him on. Um, and the more challengers there are, the better it is for, for Donald Trump. Now, we have to wait and see if you know there be any kind of other legal hammers come falling down on the former president. Are we at this tipping point um, in terms of you know support or lack of support for the former president as a result of what happened in Georgia? Right, another one of his candidates went down a defeat. And so, will Republicans begin to look at the former president as an econ- uh, or as an electoral liability? Because I think that's the only thing that's going to hurt him. He can say whatever he wants tweet whatever he wants, um, and Republicans won't challenge him. But if they view him as an electoral liability, that he's hurting other Republicans being elected, and that there's a good chance he would lose the 2024 election, that's when they're going to abandon him. Newell Norman, coming out of the midterm, said it's time to put Trump in the rear view. But yet, uh, as your survey showed, I mean, there is a tremendous amount of support for the former president, at least in the state of Louisiana, at least at this time. What does that say, and what did the midterm say about his ability uh, to get elected and to change elections? Republicans did, you know, far worse than anyone anticipated, myself included, that for the last hundred years, the average number of seats lost by the president's party is 27. So I, I went with the average. I figured 25 to 30 seats would flip from the Democrats to the Republicans. It didn't happen. And, and I think a lot of it was just the fact that people didn't do a retrospective evaluate, an evaluation. They, they weren't looking at the election as a referendum on the president's party. They were looking to the future. It was more of a perspective analysis. You know, here are the important issues, abortion being one issue, uh, you know, gun control is another issue. Uh, the state of democracy being an issue, and which party do I want to go with in the future on this? And so I think, uh, you know, that's why Republicans didn't do as well as everyone anticipated. And of course, the presidents who personally selected and recruited a number of these individuals did not do well. Uh, You know, I think only two of 16 election deniers were elected. And so um, we're beginning to see some cracks uh, in that foundation, um, but I don't think we're, we're quite there yet the, the, because, you know, Donald Trump still does have that loyal base of Republicans that 
other Republican officials fear very much that if you offend Trump, then you're going to offend his supporters, and you're not going to win. You're, it's not that you're not going to win the election. You're not going to win the primary, and that's the key. You got to win that primary to get into the general election, and it's those primary voters who are many of them strident Trump supporters. And oddly, I started asking you about the governor's race, and, and here we are talking about <laughs> Trump. But does that show the power of the Trump effect? Yes, absolutely. Even it's still within there. Louisiana, you are either a MAGA Republican or you're a centrist or maybe a non-Republican in that way when people are even viewed as a centrist Republican. Right, or an independent who leans Republican, right? right? Uh, and I think one of the things we saw in the midterms was how independents abandoned the Republican Party uh, and, and went with the Democrats. And that doesn't necessarily mean they're in favor of the Democrats. It's just that, well, here's, I got two options, all right? Um, this, I, I like this option less than the other one. I got to go with the Democrats. Now, getting back to the, the governor's race, this is Governor John Bell Edwards's last term, obviously. Uh, coming out of the Democratic side, do you see, and I haven't heard many big names that would be in contention for, for the seat at all and against the, the Republicans? Really, at this stage of the game, the Democratic Party, uh, the, the state Democratic Party in Louisiana is out in the wilderness. They seem to just to be lost. They don't really have anyone in the bullpen in terms of uh, cultivating, you know, new candidates to run for local or even statewide office, inability to, you know, have any organizational presence, inability to raise money. You know, the fact that in that the last Senate race where they had three candidates, the Democratic Party endorsed all three candidates, right? Which literally makes no sense, right? You, you see, you got your three candidates. You, you know, we think this is the candidate who can has the best chance of winning, all right, and this is what we're going to put our organization and our money behind. It didn't happen. And so um, I don't see a, a strong Democratic challenger out there. The Democratic Party is now where the Republican Party was in, the, in Louisiana 50 years ago. It was out in the wilderness, and it wasn't running candidates, and it was just seeding you know, and they were just experienced defeatists in terms of elections, and this is where the Democrats are today. So they've just got to start from scratch, recruit candidates, raise money, you know, figure out where they are on the issues, uh, and then just, you know, start at the local level, state legislature, work your way up. So when you look at the, the Republican side, obviously um, Jeff Landry has got the endorsement of the, the Republican Party in Louisiana very early. Do you see anybody else that would kind of vie for for contention in the primary with him? Well, I think, you know, John Kennedy getting 62% of the vote in the Senate uh, is kind of, you know, got momentum. And I would suspect that there are a lot of people out there, at, you know, asking him to run because they don't want to see Jeff Landry become the state's next governor. Why is that? Because it's, it's you know, it's more about, for Landry, it's more about political combat than anything else. It's about, you know, challenging, you know, he challenged the governor on, on every opportunity that he could. So it's more about politics, it's more about combat than it is about issues and about solving the problems um, that face the state. And this state faces a lot of problems. I mean, we're, we are well behind our sister states in the South in terms of education, economic growth, poverty. education, all that. Um, so we need a problem solver. And I'm not sure Jeff Landry is, is that type of individual, right? He's just kind of this hard right, you know, my way, highway, 
ideological candidate and kind of, I mean, if you, the best model, I guess, would be Bobby Jindal, right, where he just had this ideological stance and he stayed with it regardless of what the consequences were or regardless of what the harm that resulted, you know, from his, his positions. And I, and I think that's why a lot of people are con concerned about a Jeff Landry uh, administration, but that would be just, you know, Bobby Jindal point two. But considering everything that you'd mentioned there, what's your thought on why the Republican Party, knowing those concerns around Jeff Landry, would endorse him this early? Because they're uh, they're from the same cloth that he is, and so political combat. Yes, political combat. You know, the Democrats are the devils, right? We can't we can't compromise. Work with them, right wing conservatism, and this is what. You know, we need in this state, Jeff Landry best represents that. I think some would argue that John Kennedy could represent that fairly well, too. Yeah, I mean, yeah. With a lot of sound bites. Sure, sure. He, I mean, he, you know, certainly, uh, and he, I don't think he has, quite has the rough edges that, that Jeff Landry has, and so he would be a much more acceptable candidate. Shervenick says the midterm elections for members of Louisiana's congressional delegation went as scripted, with those who were running winning their races. While the GOP failed to get control of the Senate, power in the House did shift to Republicans, and Shervenek says Louisiana Congressman Steve Scalise's influence will only grow as House Majority Leader. But with a Democratic majority in the Senate and with President Biden in the White House, we can anticipate more of what's been coming out of Congress for so long now, and that's gridlock. Here's to consistency in the new year. In New Orleans, I'm Tom Trung for WWL Radio.